0: It doesn't actually exist in a physical form. It's just an idea. It is a lack of light that we experience that we call darkness. But what we're really doing is saying there isn't enough light for me to see. There isn't enough light to, you know, photons bouncing off of things going into my eyes so that I can see what's going on. It's the presence of light that matters. And so this week we're going to look in Genesis 22 at the promise that God has made. And I bring up the cold and the light because how we understand God's promises is going to reveal a whole lot about what we consider to be true. And if we don't understand certain theological points, and, and we are going to have a bit of a theology lesson here early in the sermon before we get to the scripture. Because when we understand God's promises correctly, they become The most powerful and wonderful things you'll ever know. But if we look at them as though darkness has a physical form. If we look at it as though cold exists and we interpret them in that arena. Sometimes those promises won't mean as much to us because we don't understand their magnitude. You know, it's kind of the idea that we talk about the gospel is the good news, right? Well, what makes it good? It's the enormity of the bad news that it's replacing. If we don't understand just how dire the bad news is, then the incredible lengths God has gone to to bring us the good news, we might not be impressed with it. And so we start today by I want to tell you something. A a theological truth is that darkness cannot produce light. Darkness cannot produce light. In this world, brokenness simply brings more brokenness. Death begets death. Sin leads to more sin. Why? Because death cannot fix itself. Now think of that. Sin can't fix itself. Death cannot fix itself. And the Bible tells us in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin is death. Now, a wage is, of course, something that you have earned. And what do we know from Romans 3 that we talked about last week? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that means that all of us, every single one, what have we earned in God's economy? Death. The wages of sin is death. Now, this is something that I, I really, I want to ask this question, is why are we not more fully convinced of this truth in this world? We still, too many times, and I, I can't even raise my own hand, it's, it's like we want to rank sin. You know, this sin is worse than this sin. But if we really understood sin as to what it really is, we would think of it, we would stop ranking sins, because we'd start to understand is one dead more dead than the other dead? Dead's dead, right? Death is death. How you died doesn't matter. (laughs) Once you cross over into death, all death is the same. But if we don't understand that and we want to rank sins and we want to look at certain sins as as acceptable or maybe not that bad or, you know, maybe they're socially acceptable so maybe God will give me a pass. Maybe this sin doesn't really lead to death. Maybe it just leads to suffering. Then we won't look at the good news as absolutely necessary. We won't be driven to our knees before God in desperation Because we understand our situation for what it is. And if we don't understand the situation. Then we're probably going to believe at some point. We can fix it ourselves. Now I'm going to ask for a moment of honesty. Men. You got to be honest. Women you do too. But I'm going to pick on the men a little bit more. How many times have you been convinced you could fix something. And you held out way longer than you should have. I got it, you know. And somebody's like, I, look, it's not working. It's working. Just, just, I'm, I'm almost there. And, you know, and then after a time, a period goes by. I mean, it's just like you just dig in more and more. Like, I, I can fix this. I'm going to make it work. And what typically happens at that point? <laughs> you throw it away. You've you've probably made it worse, though, right? Like your fix ends up breaking it more. And then you start thinking in your mind, well, now i got to fix this. And the problem just keeps growing. You know that's what we do spiritually when we start trying to fix things ourselves. We make it worse. And you know why? Because death can't fix itself. Darkness cannot produce light. And if we have all fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, and that means that is our starting point, is that we are dead spiritually. And if we are not fully convinced of this truth, and I mean dead, okay? What does the word dead mean? That means devoid of life with no possibility of it coming back to life. You know, one time... You know, for a while, I, I always wanted to have a bonsai tree. You, who else likes those? I just think they're cool. Like these little bitty trees. You know, it's probably because I watched The Karate Kid, like, about 500 times too many in my life. But I remember it was right after Jan and I got married. We saw this place, and they're selling little trees. And I'm like, I want one. So I bought it, and I took it home. I'm proud of it. It's up there. And, you know, I would water. I was taking care of it like I was supposed to, but... I noticed after a while, like, it wasn't growing. I didn't have to trim it. But it was still green. And so I just kept watering. And finally, and one day I'm like, I don't think that thing's alive. And I I took it out of the pot. Yeah, that thing had been dead for a long time. It might have been dead when I bought it. I don't know. But, man, I was watering it. I was doing all the stuff that, you know, hey, this is what you got to do and give it its sunlight. It, It was dead. But you know, the funny thing is, is it never changed color. I don't know what was going on with it, but it looked like it was alive when it wasn't. And we can have outward signs that we take as life when really we're dead. And people around us would look and say, oh, no, look, the leaves are green. You're you're fine. It's all good. And God says, no, you're dead. Because if we are convinced, if we aren't fully convinced that the wages of sin is death, then we'll look at it and say, you know what, though? I'm, I'm healthy. I, I'm, I'm reasonably, you know, okay. in my job, I mean, we, we'll compare ourselves to what? To other dead things and say, look, I've got life. I'm just like everyone else. And God says, you are just like everyone else. Because all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and the wages of sin is death. You're right. You're just like everyone else because you're all dead. Now, I know that's not, you know, probably what you woke up this morning to come in and like, he's going to have an encouraging message for us today. But if this is the true condition of where we are. Shouldn't it lead to a sense of desperation? Shouldn't it lead us to be willing to change the way we think and look at the world but as long as we believe that darkness can produce light, that something can come out of my life that God's going to be impressed with, that, that somehow at the end of time, at the judgment, I'm going to be able to bring something that I produced and put it before God and say, look what I did, and God's going to be impressed, then I won't be desperate for help. I won't be desperate for, wait a minute, I'm you mean I'm... at. Totally lost, like there's no chance I'm ever going to impress God. There's no way I can come back to life through anything I'm going to do. No, there isn't. That is the condition of all of mankind. Every one of us are born into this. In the instant we rebel against God, we die. And we all inherited the rebellious nature of Adam. Every one of us. And so if something is going to happen, the answer has to come from outside of a fallen dead creation as we know it, right? Light has to come from somewhere else. We can't look to ourselves. We can't look to our world. And what does our world always tell us? Oh, just trust your own heart. Look within and you'll find the answer. What does God say about the human heart? The human heart is sick and dead and desperately ill. And and above all things, it is deceitful. Don't look to yourself. The Bible says within you is nothing but darkness. Do you see how the world tells us one thing and God tells us something completely different? We have to be fully convinced that darkness cannot produce light. I cannot help my situation. In fact, listen to how God says it. Okay, in Isaiah 64, 6, it says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now, I don't know about you, but the word all means all. Everyone. There isn't anyone exempt from this. And notice he says, All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, people believe, no, no, I'm I'm a kind person. You may be in worldly understanding of things compared to other dead people in this world. You may be the kindest human being on earth, but your kindness, when compared to holiness, falls short. It's not perfect. And our righteous deeds come from a place of death, which means at the core, And people don't like this. I mean, this is not a popular one today. But at our core, even our righteous deeds spring from a sinful, apart from Christ, our righteous deeds spring from a sinful motivation. In some way, it's polluted, okay? I'm not saying that everything we do is, you know, we're all trying to, You know become some kind of evil person in this world i'm just saying if the heart is deceitful above all things Then that means even when we're trying in our own power not not through jesus But in our own power when we are trying to be good. There's a selfish sinful reason at the core And god is not fooled by it Who's fooled by it we are we deceive ourselves the Apostle Paul puts it this way again in Romans three ten through 12. It says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, what he's talking about here is in our basic human state. Okay, there are many of you here who are saved, you know Jesus is your Savior, You, you have trusted him, and you do seek for what's righteous, but you're not, that seeking is different now because you have life injected into you from God. In our own, we won't do it. We won't accidentally do good things in life. That stream and that current runs one way and we are all caught up in it until Something comes from the outside to take care of us. Now, how do we understand? How do we come to understand just what, how, how bad our condition is? Well, God gave us a way to do that. You see, God wants us to understand how desperate our situation is so that we will accept his offer of grace and life and, and be grateful and follow him and love and be freed. But if we don't understand how bad it is, then maybe the cross isn't totally necessary. And so what did God do? He gave us his law to prove to us just how bad we are. You see, the the Old Testament law had one function. Did you know that it was one? To prove to us we're messed up. That's it. He gave it to us simply to to just drive home like, I want you to see just how sinful you really are. Now, did he do this out of vengeance? No, because God knew what he was doing, and he said, I'm going to give you the law first, and that's going to reign for a long time, and sin is going to grow in your heart, and you're going to recognize sin for what it is so that when the times comes for the promise that we're going to talk about today, you'll be ready for it. See, until the heart is broken by the law It can't be healed by grace. And that's for anyone. And I mean it. Until the hard heart is shattered and broken by the law of God, you won't see your need for grace. And so, he gave us very simple things. I mean, I I want you to listen to Romans 7, 7 through 10. The Apostle Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. The law is good. He said, Yet if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I, what? Say it, say it louder. Died. Died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Why? Because sin was already in his nature. And the law simply activates it. Okay? And I want to prove to you just how rebellious you are. You don't know how rebellious you are. Okay? And I'm going to prove it right now. Do not. Do not think of the color red. How many of you immediately saw a red light, a red something in your mind? Now, that's not on a moral issue. That is not of eternal significance, but that is how the human mind works. That is what sin does. So Paul says when the law comes along and says, hey, don't make idols, sin says, cool. I want to make an idol. And John Calvin came along later and said, you know what? The human heart is an idol factory. Like we just, this is what we do. And Paul says, hey, I didn't even know what coveting was until the law said, don't covet. Suddenly, that's what I did, and I died. That's how rebellious we are. And the entire law of God was designed to show us that. Because I want you to look at something. The law is good because it makes us aware of sin, and it does lay out what righteousness is. But if you understand the law correctly, it should leave you desperate of like, there's no way. I can't do it. And let's take the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's not exactly like God set the bar really high. Don't murder. He had to tell us that. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. I mean, we kind of would look at that and think, he has to tell us not to do that, and yet, it, what, it still happens. That's our condition. Okay? It, last week, you remember when I asked you, how do you see the world? Is the world broken? Is it sick but curable? Or is it good? Because how you see the world will affect how you interact with the world, what you see. I got to ask an even deeper question today. How do you see yourself? As utterly and sinfully broken? As sick but curable or as good? Until we see ourselves as utterly and sinfully broken. Darkness that cannot produce light. We'll think we can fix it. We'll deceive ourselves into believing we can fix it. And we'll do things like create laws. And we'll look to the law of God and say, look, if I just make enough rules, then somehow I'll be good. What did Paul just tell you? He says, you make all the rules you want. Sin is going to lead you to violate every single one of them in some way. And the person who objects to say, no, no, I've never murdered anybody. I kept that one. What did Jesus say? He came along and says, yeah, you've been angry. Yeah, you did it in your heart. Oh, (laughs) I mean, Jesus came along and he, you remember our series on the Sermon on the Mount. He just raised that bar so high that he's like, don't think that you're going to skate by on technicalities. God knows your heart. He knows how sick it is. Now, I say all of that. Okay, because we have to see ourselves as utterly broken. We have to see that sin has killed us. And we all have done it. Because then comes the good news is that God promises to provide what we need most. He made this promise all the way back in Genesis 3 and he starts reiterating this promise over and over and over throughout the Old Testament until Jesus shows up. And that's when he shows up and says what? The kingdom of God is at hand. What God has promised to provide, it's here. And yet people missed it then. There were people looking for it that rejoiced and there were people that completely missed it. You know who it was that rejoiced Those who knew their own sin. You know who it was that missed it? Those who thought they were good. Those who did not see themselves as utterly sinful. They had a problem with Jesus. They didn't like him because what did he do? He convicted them. They started feeling the weight of their sin around him. The people who already felt the weight of their sin, what did they get? They felt freedom. Isn't it amazing how that happens? When we feel the weight of our sin and we know we're broken, we go to Jesus, we find freedom. If we don't think we have sin or we think our sin isn't that bad or we think that we can somehow cure it, we get around Jesus and, man, the weight just starts pressing down more and more. And we either listen to Jesus and change our mind on that or what do we have to do? we got to stop Jesus from talking. we got to get away from him or get him away from us. And so God promises to provide, and biblical history is a progressive revelation, which means it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until we get to Jesus, okay, of just how God is going to provide. Throughout the story from Genesis on, we get our hopes up that something's going to bring about this kingdom of righteousness, well, sin will be no more, and we kind of have these high points, and then what happens? Crash. Well, look, sin is still active. And we see it. Adam and Eve in the garden. It's wonderful. They choose to sin. Crash. Everything's bad. So then what happens? Cain and Abel are born. And Abel, he worships God. And God accepts it. And it's like, okay, there's hope. What happens? Cain kills Abel. Crash. More curses. Cain is cursed. More curses in the world. And it seems to crash again. And then, and then Seth is born, which Seth means chosen, and that is the start of this whole story throughout Scripture there. And the line of Seth starts to be followed. And you get to Noah, and what has happened? Everything has gone horribly wrong. And I mean horribly wrong. It says it's so bad that God laments having created man. like he, he's, he's sorry, regrets creating man because there's so much evil and so much death. And so what does he do? He floods the earth and he starts over. And does that achieve righteousness on earth? No, because immediately after it's over, Noah gets drunk. Crash again. (sighs) Except this time God said, okay, I promise I won't ever do that again. So now we've got to start something new, and so you keep moving forward, and, and it just—it all starts getting so bad that finally the, the the people are like, "Hey, we'll build a tower up to heaven, and we'll just we'll just do what we want to do." And God says, "No, you won't," and He confuses their language and spreads them out over the earth, and says, "Y'all don't get to work together like this anymore because you're evil." And then we come to a guy named Abram, and something interesting happens. God says, "Hey, Abram," and he says, "Yeah." here I am. And he goes, I'm, I'm God. And he says, okay. He says, get up and leave everything. You know, leave your people. and I'll, I'll show you where to go. And he says, okay. And he leaves. And then God says, Hey, I know you're old, but you're going to have a son. And he says, okay. And 25 years go by and the son's still in and there. And he's like, Hey, you know, I'm a hundred years old. And He goes, Hey, you're still going to have a son. I says, Okay. And Abram, this this is what's amazing here, is this story, Is it it comes to a point in Genesis 15, 6, it says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram just simply believed him. God would say, hey, do this. He's like, okay. Hey, trust me in this. Okay, I'll do it. And he just simply trusts God and believes him, and God's like, hey, that's going to be righteousness. It's not that you're going to be perfect, it's not that it's, I'm going to consider it righteousness when you believe me. Just believe me and follow me, and that'll be enough. Now we miss so many times how big this verse is in things, because the game just changed. Because it doesn't mean there won't be challenges. It just means God has redefined stuff for us, because He says, "Look, I know you're never going to actually be righteous. Darkness can't produce light, so I'm going to give you righteousness and all you got to do is believe me just believe me and i will count it as righteousness i will credit it to you so where's the righteousness coming from the creditor who's the creditor god he says i'll, I'll just give you righteousness look I'd, you know god is perfect and do whatever he wants he's fully righteous so he says just believe me and i'll just give you of my own righteousness i'll just give you righteousness because you will never produce it on your own ever so just believe me and i'll just give it to you doesn't that seem amazing just believe me i'll just give it to you and so he credits him with righteousness that doesn't mean that there aren't tests that doesn't mean that there aren't hard times so now let's look at how this promise works because god promised to provide what we need most what is it that we need most we need righteousness but we also need god to provide that way of righteousness for us because we can't produce it ourselves So, let's look in Genesis 22, 1 through 18. Now, at this point in in, in Abram's life, he's been renamed Abraham because he'll be the father of many. His son Isaac has been born. Uh, Okay? And, you know, they're like 10, 12 years old at this point, uh, uh, Isaac is. And it says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. I mean, it's kind of a normal response for him. He said, take your son. Your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now, how many of you are already disturbed? I I hope you are. God has promised this child to him, and now he's like, hey, go, go do that human sacrifice thing that all of the other pagan religions around do. Go sacrifice him to me. Now, people freak out today because we just that's not a thing today like it was then. Understand, in Abraham's time, that's not a weird commandment. Child sacrifice was routine in that time period. They sacrificed their children to Molech. They sacrificed their children to Baal. They did that. And so God speaks to him and says, hey, go sacrifice your son. Now, it, up to this point, things have been different with Abram and God, but this is not exactly a weird command given the culture, okay? It's, it's a little strange for God at this point, but not for the culture. And so he says, offer him. It says, so Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. Any of this sounding eerily familiar? Laying the wood on his back to carry. And he took took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Like Isaac's getting a little nervous here. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. You notice God keeps repeating that. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now that story is full of revelation that God is hoping people will see. So let's talk about some key moments, okay? Abraham went into this with faith. He did. He believed God and he trusted God even when he had no reason to, even when suddenly this looks like it's falling down into a place of of just like everything else in this broken world and it doesn't make sense and you sacrifice your son, even though I'm now like 112 years old and you told me I'd have this child and I don't understand anything that's happening... Okay, Lord, I'll obey. I'll do what you tell me. And yet he goes into it with faith because what does he say? He says, I and the boy will go and worship and come to you again. Did you notice that when he said that? He told his men, We'll both be back. He didn't know how, but he knew in his heart, God made this promise and he's going to provide, or you know what? He had a child born when I was 100. My wife was 80. He can certainly bring him back to life. I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know how, but I can trust God. And he trusts him in that moment. And he tells Isaac, when Isaac's like, hey, dad, we're kind of missing something here. He says what? He says, God will provide for what? Himself. You see, this whole offering was about God. It's about him. And, God's, and he says, God will provide for himself. Now, what is that? That is a promise of understanding what God's whole process was going to be leading to Jesus. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And then verse 12, do not lay your hand upon the boy or do anything to harm him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld what? Your son, your only son. Now, why did God keep repeating that? He wanted to stress and emphasize over and over to Abraham, hey, this is your one and only. This is it. Your one and only son. Where have we heard that else? For God so loved the world that he gave what? His one and only son. Notice, see, God is the master storyteller, and he's getting us familiar with phrases early. He's getting us familiar with themes early. Early. Notice he took Isaac and he put the wood on his back, made him carry it to the mountain, kind of like Jesus carrying his cross up the hill of Golgotha. God is setting all of these themes up. And here's the wonderful thing to think about He's using history to do it. This is real time. And Abraham believed him. Okay, verses 13 and 14 it says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up. He was ready to follow through all the way until God said, stop. Now, did God ever intend for Isaac to be harmed? No. This was a test of of his heart. This was a test of Abraham. And Isaac was, you know, probably never the same after that again. (laughs) You want to go worship on the mountain no you can go do that by yourself dad you tried to kill me last time god told me don't tell me god told you to (laughs) you know i mean it probably made for some awkward conversations and then verse 16 through 18 again god says by myself i have sworn declares the lord because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son i will bless you And I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Verse 18, this is the important one. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That is one offspring, one person. Jesus Christ. And God couched this promise in this whole story of I'm going to provide. God will provide for himself the lamb. And then all of this happens and he says, and and through your offspring, the whole of creation will be blessed. He is foreshadowing Jesus right here in the Old Testament all the way back in Genesis. Now, why do we go through all of this so much? Because mankind is desperately lost and broken We cannot save ourselves. We cannot produce righteousness on our own. It's not in our power On our best day When everything works, right We're still sinful And if we're not convinced of that then we'll miss the promise That God has been telling all of creation from the beginning. I'll provide it for you. And what did he do? He'll provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Because faith is going to be counted as righteousness now. Faith. That's the promise. Is that God says I'll provide everything necessary for it. I'll provide the lamb. I'll provide the offering. I'll provide what I require for righteousness. And I will give you of my own righteousness all you have to do is believe. Now, when we truly believe, what does that mean? I'm not talking superstitious belief, carrying a rabbit's foot in your pocket for good luck that has absolutely no impact on your life. Okay, we have to learn to seek the faith of Abraham. This is why Abraham is so important in this entire story you get into the new testament they keep talking about abraham they keep talking about it jesus talks about abraham paul talks about it why because his faith was genuine he is a perfect example of what it means to believe god because that belief led to obedience Was he perfect? No, no. He he could be deceptive. He could be deceitful. He he could be a weak man at times. When you read in Abraham's life, he'd get scared and start lying to people. But that didn't matter in the sense that, yeah, he caused some suffering on himself and others, and and it, it added to the brokenness of the world. But ultimately, he believed God's promises. And when God said, Abraham, do this, he said, okay, I'll do it. And he followed because he believed God. And every time he believed God, God counted it to him as righteousness. And his life was a life of faith. And we have to learn to seek the faith of Abraham. He chose to believe God when it made no sense to believe him. We kind of miss the commands that God gives him. Hey, Abraham, you don't know me, but I'm the God who created the universe. Okay, okay. Get up, leave everything you know, and go to a land I'll show you. He didn't even know where to go. But God says, hey, pack up and leave. Okay, I'll go. And he just leaves. He had no reason to believe it outside of he just believed God. Now, we are in a far more privileged position today because, you know what? He didn't have this to go check. Look, look how much of it's been done <laughs> by the time we get there. There's not a whole lot of story there for him to go back and rely on. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the scriptures. We have the the, the New Testament. We have Jesus already come and the promise fulfilled. We have so much that we have that we have no excuse not to live in faith. But faith always leads to obedience. And so two questions again to finish. When you think of faith, do you think of a set of beliefs to agree with? Or do you think of a lifestyle of trust and obedience based in those beliefs? Faith must move beyond superstition or just having the correct amount of facts in your mind. Faith affects the heart. Faith says, I have to follow God. This is true and I have to act accordingly. Faith forces action in our lives. And... Do you believe God enough to trust him with what is most important in your life? God repeatedly said, take your son, your one and only son, whom you love. I mean, he's stressing, I know how much Isaac means to you. You know, you have your first child at 100 years old. That kid's probably pretty special. Valued. This is the promise of God that I saw fulfilled in my life. I mean, this this was earth-shaking, monumental stuff. And God says, I know you love him. Now sacrifice him to me. And he's like, "Ah, okay. Doesn't make any sense, but why stop trusting you now? And he trusted him. And what happened? God provided. God took care of it. All worked out in the end. As I told you a while back, in the end, everything will be all right. And if it's not all right, it isn't the end. That's God's story. So do you believe God enough to trust him with what is most important in your life? Because if we don't, he'll ask for it. To prove we've got something more important. And if we refuse to give it up, sometimes if we're really a child of God and we're born again, he'll just take it from us. And say, you don't get to have this idol. What is the first commandment? Love You know, I am the Lord, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. We create that God. He's not impressed. Abraham had faith that put God first in every situation. Let's pray. Father God, I just come to you and Lord, we thank you. God, that we have these stories. These rich stories of faith and trust that really deal with the, the truth of, of who you are and who we are. God, I pray we wouldn't just look at these as stories, but as examples. Examples to be followed, to learn from, to be inspired by. And God, I pray that you would, would look in the heart of each of us, God, that we would be willing to look for the promise that you have in our lives, God that we wouldn't be distracted, we wouldn't have despair. But God, we would know the truth of us and the truth of you so that your promise means everything. You have provided for us, God. His name was Jesus. God, lead us to trust you. Lord Jesus, lead us to follow you in faith every single day. Obeying what you tell us to obey, walking faithfully, even when to our own mind it doesn't make sense. That we would trust you with what is most precious, what is most important, because we know that you are love, you are good, and you want good for us. God, wherever anyone is struggling in here right now, God, to to maybe lay those things down, to trust at that level, because we know that trust at that level is dangerous. But God, you are trustworthy in every way. So God, wherever anyone is struggling with that, God, I pray, Lord, that you just give them and show them your peace. Bring the healing that's necessary to walk by faith with you. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray together. Amen.